that don't know me, my name is Jez. Hi. Welcome. Great to see you. Um, I have the honour of preaching to you from God's Word today. So, we are going to be looking at this very famous passage in the Bible, the crossing of the Red Sea. Now, for those of you um, who follow films, you may be aware that there will be a film coming out very shortly based on the Exodus, uh, directed by Ridley Scott. It's called Exodus, Gods and Kings, and the trailers have already come out. It stars Christian Bale um, as Batman, I mean Moses. And um, through the trailers, we've already seen... We've already seen um, the first glimpses of what the film's going to be like. We, we know the classic imagery that's come through. We've seen uh, ancient cities and deserts in the trailers, Jewish slaves, rivers of blood, Egyptian men wearing eyeliner, all the standards. But the final shot, the last impression we're left with, unsurprisingly, in the trailer, is this. Now, I don't know if you can see very well, but of course it is um, a wall of water that represents the Red Sea that has been parted at Moses' hand. It's perhaps one of the most famous stories of the whole Old Testament and has captured the imaginations of many for years. Um, It's been retold through modern cinema plenty of times, whether that's through Disney's The Prince of Egypt, or if you're old school, Charlton Heston's The Ten Commandments. But what do we do with a story like this. For most people today, it's nothing more than an ancient tale. Uh, Skeptics, of course, seriously doubt whether these events actually happened. But as far as the biblical writers are concerned, it's to be treated differently. Not only do they assume that the events actually took place in history, but in both the New and the Old Testament, the Bible constantly refers to it as the key picture of salvation. We read in the New Testament that Jesus is compared with Moses. Christians are compared with the Israelites going into the Red Sea. There are all sorts of references throughout the Bible that come back to this one significant event. So given that then, as we go through the story this morning, we need to listen to what this event has to say to us as Christians about what our salvation is like. The salvation that we've received in the Gospel. Now, um, like most preachers, I have three main things to say to you this morning uh, about the passage that I think it tells us about our salvation. The first is that salvation depends on God. The second is that salvation comes through a mediator. And finally, salvation brings God glory. So first of all, salvation depends on God. Now, as we pick up the story, The Israelites have just been let go from Egypt. Um, They've just been let go from Pharaoh. They are finally free. They've been in slavery for years and generations. And Pharaoh has been stubborn. He's not wanting to let the, um, the Israelites go, even when Moses has come, on the authority of Yahweh himself, the Lord, the God who has revealed himself. Um, but finally, Pharaoh has been broken after a number of plagues that have devastated him and his country. And the Israelites are free to leave. Now, this is awesome news. It's wonderful. The Israelites can go. But they're still vulnerable. I mean, after all, they're not a particularly organized group, are they? They're a bit of a rabble made up of a few ex-slaves and some tag-along Egyptians. Most of them don't even know what life is like outside of slavery. And so they're not really the most streetwise of people. If they're wandering through the hostile world of the ancient Near East, um, they haven't really got a massive chance of looking after themselves. 
Luckily, this is not something that they have to worry about. The Lord, Yahweh himself, knows their situation. He has um, brought them out of Egypt. And as we see right at the beginning of this passage, he takes it upon himself to lead them. These sheep are not without a shepherd. The Lord reveals himself as a huge pillar of clouds during the day and of fire at night, which graciously leads them through the land, through the wilderness, so that the Israelites can can easily follow them and, and stay together and keep in formation without wandering off. Now, if you look at verse 17, we see that the Yahweh Satnav takes a bit of an unexpected route. Instead of taking the shortest route towards Canaan, the promised land, um, the Lord leads them on a detour so that they don't have to go through Philistine territory and fight them because God knows that the Israelites will end up legging it back to Egypt. Now, as John said last week, Israel have been described in military terms as soon as they've been brought out of Egypt. Um, And it says here in verse 18 that they were armed for battle. But what sort of army are they? They've had no training. I mean, it's more dad's army than the SAS, isn't it? And God doesn't want them to run back to Egypt. So he takes them on a random route, which uh, ends up near the Red Sea. Now, I should have a classic Google map to sort of explain. So Ramesses um, is around here, uh, where the Israelites would have come from. And you would expect that they would cross here to go this way up to the Promised Land. But instead, God leads them down on a massive detour to a... Scholars think probably around here, this is the Red Sea, um, so they camped about here. So, random route. Now, by this point, in chapter 14, verse 5, if you have a look, we read that Pharaoh has had a bit of a change of heart about the Israelites. It's dawned on him that the Egyptians have lost their entire workforce for good, which isn't great for Egyptian society, and so they want them back. And so what happens, Pharaoh gets his best soldiers together on their finest military um, technology. They have chariots, and they get the elite force and all the rest of the army, and they go to chase after the runaway slaves. Now, of course, Egypt catches up with uh, the Israelites pretty easily, and Israel's reaction is understandable. Look at verse 10 of chapter 14. Find it myself. As Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up, and there were the Egyptians marching after them. They were terrified and cried out to the Lord. So they have nowhere to go. They're hemmed in by, on one side by the sea and with the Egyptians on the other. And they don't really have a great chance of defending themselves. As far as their own resources are concerned, the, uh, the Israelites are in real trouble. Now, they say that when you put someone under pressure, you get to see what they're really like. Their real character shines through. And what we see next is that the Israelites are not merely a helpless people, but they're actually a sinful people. Look at how they speak to Moses in the next verse, um, verses 11 to 12. So they said to Moses, was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us out to the desert to die? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone, let us serve the Egyptians? It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. Now, it's understandable that the Israelites would have been a little bit concerned, given their circumstances. After all, their backs are up against the wall. But their attitude towards Moses here, I mean, it's just 
completely out of line. And their lack of faith is astounding. After all of God's wonders that he's shown them, plagues, their release um, from Egypt, for goodness sake, a pillar of fire and cloud leading them through the desert. I mean, I don't know what more they want to sort of help them have trust in God. But they, they act like Egypt wasn't actually that bad. And they start making things up. Look at verse 12 again. Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone, let us serve the Egyptians? I mean, can you imagine being Moses and hearing this? Uh, no, I don't, I don't remember you saying that, actually, to be honest. I mean, I remember you saying that you hated slavery. I remember the Lord saying he was going to save you and that you would bow down and worship him. I remember that very clearly. I don't remember you saying you wanted to serve the Egyptians. They didn't say that, did they? No one ever said that they wanted to serve the Egyptians. What a crazy thing to say. They hated slavery. It was horrifying oppression at the hand of Egypt. They had brutal manual labor. The Egyptians even carried out a campaign of murdering their children. And yet, here are the Israelites who don't put their faith in God, whose power has been tried and tested, but instead question whether leaving Egypt was a good idea in the first place. I mean, it's irrational, isn't it? But then again, isn't that what sin is like? The truth is, we can't sneer at the Israelites, can we? As Christians, we have also been freed from slavery. Not physical bondage, but our slavery to sin. We've been freed from its penalty, what we deserve from it, and we've been freed from its power. And we're now able to serve God and love our neighbours with the power of God's own spirit in our lives. And we can live differently than we did before. We don't have to rebel against God, we can serve him and love him. And yet, don't we look back to Egypt? Is that not what we do whenever we choose sin instead of God's way? Whenever we hold grudges against other people, whenever we lack generosity towards the other, when we indulge our lusts or when we neglect to pray, whenever we put things first in our lives other than God, are we not exactly like these Israelites many times? The real tragic thing is that we, we choose these things even when we know that they harm us. These Israelites are in quite a state. They were unable and they were undeserving of their salvation. They couldn't save themselves. I mean, Dad's army, what chance have they got against the military power of Egypt? None. And they didn't deserve their salvation. They were rebellious and they failed to trust God even after all the signs and wonders that he'd shown them. If they had any chance of being saved from the Egyptians, it would depend on the Lord and on his grace alone. And this is what's promised. After the faithless grumbling of the Israelites, look at Moses' amazing reply. Look at verse 13 and 14. Moses answered the people, do not be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You only need to be still. So this is Moses' great speech before the coming battle. It's not quite Churchill, is it? Israel aren't about to fight Egypt on the beaches and in the valleys and on the land. Moses isn't trying to psych up the people, stirring up courage and honouring them so they can bravely fight the enemy. Quite the opposite. The Israelites are going to do nothing they don't need to fear because the Lord himself is going to fight for them. 
Yahweh will be the one who gets his hands dirty and sorts out their mess. All they are are to do is to stay quiet and to watch. And this is an important principle that applies to us in our salvation. Friends, when we were saved, just like the Israelites, we, we did nothing. We did nothing. We were lost in our rebellion against God, and we were as helpless as those weak Hebrews were at the shore of the sea. The phrase, God helps those who help themselves, is not a sentiment that is found in the Bible. The reality is a lot more stark. Either the Lord saves us, or we're dead. Now, to someone who knows their own sinfulness and weakness, to someone who understands that they can't save themselves and are desperate, then this is excellent news. This is wonderful news. They can put their faith in the Lord Jesus and know that he has fought for them and that they are secure in his work. For those stuck in pride, though, who trust their own inherent goodness, this truth is offensive. And the problem is, even as Christians, we easily act like salvation wasn't quite dependent on God alone. And that shows often when we harbour attitudes of pride against other people. I wonder how many of us deep down think that we're better than our neighbours just because we're Christians and they're not. I wonder how many of us think that we're better Christians than those around us maybe at church just because we're more mature or we know our Bibles better or we serve on the rota quite a lot. And I wonder how much that pride has hindered us from serving other people. We must watch out for attitudes like these. We must remind ourselves that salvation depends solely, solely on the Lord. If you're a Christian today, it's only because the Lord saved you. The only thing that you contributed to your salvation was your sin. The Lord is the one who saves, and we have no reason for pride. Salvation depends on God. Secondly then, uh, salvation comes through a mediator. Now in the case of the Israelites of the Red Sea, that mediator is Moses. Moses is the one who represents both God and the people. And we see this in a number of ways in the passage. Um, First, we see that Moses represents the Israelites. Now after Moses' rousing speech, Um, God speaks to him in verse 15, and it says this, The Lord said to Moses, Why are you crying out to me? Tell the Israelites to move on. Now, hold on a minute. If you look back at verse 10, it's not Moses who's crying out, it's the Israelites who are crying out, and crying out with a lack of faith. But God is somehow asking why Moses is crying to him. So what's going on? Well, God seems to be identifying Moses with the actions of the people, of the Israelites. And therefore, Moses is somehow a partaker in their guilt, despite his own personal innocence. You see, Moses is so bound up with the people of Israel that he can even be identified with their sins. He represents the people to God. But it works the other way around too. He also represents God to the people. Because it's, we see that because it's through Moses that God saves the Israelites. And so what happens? God gets Moses to raise his staff and stretch his hands out over the sea. And the whole water dramatically splits in two. 
The water parts into two giant walls, like sort of static tidal waves, stood ominously on either side, with um, dry ground going through the middle. And it was nighttime as well, it says in the passage. So if you were there, you might not have been able to see what was going on very well, which would have only added to the mystery of this unnatural event. You'd have definitely heard it, though. As the sea was parted, there, was a roar, there would have been a roar of this southeastern wind um, that the passage says is the means by which the, the water parts. So it would have been an awesome and fearsome event. And this is how Israel is saved. They walk on the dry ground through the sea, whilst the Egyptians are held back by a pillar of cloud and, a pillar of, and, and the pillar of cloud and fire. Then the pillar moves away, and the Egyptians follow the Israelites through into the sea, but are thrown into confusion when uh, the wheels on their chariots give way. And then again, Moses stretches his, hand, his hands out over the sea, and the two walls of water come crashing down, and all the Egyptians ground, uh, are drowned, and their bodies and chariots are left on the side of the, um, on the beach for everyone to see at the end. Now, this is all very terrifying and awe-inspiring, but what's the deal? Why use Moses to part the sea? I mean, couldn't the Lord have just gotten to go Zeus-style and chuck thunderbolts at Pharaoh or something? What's the deal with water? Why is that important? Well, you see, in the ancient world, people were terrified of water. Um, and this is because water represented chaos or a lack of order. And so then it shouldn't be a surprise to us that right back at the beginning of the Bible in Genesis 1, before God creates the earth, it's pictured as being without form and being covered in a sort of watery chaos. I don't know if you remember, it talks about the spirit of God hovering over the waters. Before earth is created, it's just pictured as being just full of water. And what happens in creation? God tames the waters. He he separates them out to create the sky and he moves them Um, on on the earth, separates them out so that land can be revealed as well. So in creation, water or chaos is tamed and order is established. So water can be linked with creation when it's tamed, but when it's let loose, it's linked with a sort of decreation, a reversal of creation or chaos or judgment. And this makes sense of the Noah story too. This is what God floods the earth. Mankind had rebelled against God, their creator, and so as a judgment, God reverses creation and he decreates them with a flood. Does that make sense? Given that then, we see the parting of the Red Sea as an act of both creation and judgment. The waters are tamed and the land is revealed, representing a recreation of Israel as a nation. But the Egyptians, who have rebelled against the Creator, are in turn judged and suffer decreation in the waters of chaos. And thus, sort of, justice is served and a balance is sort of restored. Now, all that aside, um, God achieves all of this through Moses. He is the mediator between the Israelites and God. And boy, do those Israelites need him. Moses is Israel's only hope. If they don't have someone to represent them, then they really are stuffed. They are lost. We've already seen how helpless they are. They haven't got a chance if they don't have a mediator. Now, given that in many ways we are just as flawed as those Israelites, 
What a comfort it is that we have our own Moses. We have a mediator, and in fact, one better than Moses, the Lord Jesus. Both fully God and fully man, Jesus is the perfect representative, one being with his Father in heaven, fully divine and glorious, and yet fully human too, so he can identify with us. At the right hand of his Father in heaven, Jesus created the world, and he created us. Yet he left heaven and became as one of us to be our representative and to lead us out of our Egypt. Jesus is our guide. He set us free from our slavery to sin and its punishment when we were powerless to do anything about it ourselves. He is the Lord who fights for us. The awesome, glorious, eternal creator and sustainer of life has fought for us, us, weak, feeble, double-minded, socially awkward, messed up, us. And you know what? When Moses stood on the shore of the Red Sea all those years ago, he stretched out his arms, the sea parted, and he walked through with the rest of the people unscathed. But when Jesus led us out of slavery, he didn't go unscathed. He so closely identified himself with us that he bore our sin and took the judgment on it himself by dying for us. On that cross outside Jerusalem, it was as if Jesus had been in the middle of the Red Sea when those waters had come crashing down. He suffered his father's judgment for all our selfishness, for all our rebellion against God, our double-mindedness. Jesus, the creator, suffered decreation for you. And without Jesus, we're lost. But if we trust him, then we are saved and we are recreated. Just like Israel, we can be born again, a new creation belonging to Jesus, no longer identified by our past sins and our past baggage. So praise God that he provides us with a mediator. So salvation comes through a mediator. Finally then, salvation brings God glory. Now, if you were paying attention to the narrative as we were reading it earlier, you'd have noticed that this issue of glory crops up a number of times. In fact, it's one of the main themes of the story. The Lord, Yahweh, wants to gain glory. Look at um, chapter 14, verse 1 to 4. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the Israelites to turn back and camp near uh, Pihahiroth, between Migdol and the sea. They are to camp by the sea, directly opposite Baal Zephon. Pharaoh will think, the Israelites are wandering around the land in confusion, hemmed in by the desert. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will pursue them. But I will gain glory for myself through Pharaoh and all his army, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. Then look again at verse 16 to 18. Raise your staff to stretch out your hand over the sea to divide the water so that the Israelites can go through the sea on dry ground. I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them, and I will gain glory through Pharaoh and all his army, through his chariots and his horsemen. The Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I gain glory through Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. So the Lord wants people to know who he is. He wants to gain glory, and so he orchestrates this entire scenario, this entire event for that very purpose. 
The Red Sea crossing wasn't just an ad hoc scenario that happened to just happen. Um, He carefully planned it with the express purpose of gaining glory. So we see that God leads Israel the long way around so that they look weak and so that the Egyptians will come out and chase them. And he hardens the Egyptians' hearts so that they are drawn out to fight Israel and are drawn into the sea where they perish. All these events are orchestrated specifically so that God can dramatically judge the Egyptians and save the Israelites. Now, the result of this is that when God saves and judges, his character is displayed. He shows his justice in judging the wicked Egyptians. Remember, these people had oppressed the Israelites for years and years, even murdering their children. And it's clear that Pharaoh had no respect for the true God. If you remember when Moses came on God's behalf and told Pharaoh to let Israel go, uh, Pharaoh replied like this, Who is the Lord that I should obey him? I do not know the Lord and I will not let Israel go. Pharaoh, who himself was considered a god, set himself up in rebellion against the Lord. And so, when the Egyptians are drowned, he and his people are justly punished for their wickedness. The Lord is shown to be the true God against the false gods of the Egyptians. And also a righteous God who is so passionate about about goodness um, that he doesn't tolerate evil and will judge it. Yet at the same time, in saving the Israelites, God is shown to be gracious and merciful. Though the Israelites are less than perfect themselves, he provides them with a mediator in Moses and sets them free from their oppression that they might serve him. Though they are helpless, he leads them and he delivers them himself, showing himself to be a loving and caring God who looks after his people. And when God's character is revealed, when it's put on display, he is made known and people acknowledge him for who he is. We see this with the Egyptians who recognize in verse 25 that it's the Lord fighting for Israel. In the end, just as God had predicted, Egypt does know that he is the Lord, even in their judgment. And the Israelites recognize who God is as well. Check out verse 31. And when the Israelites saw the mighty hand of the Lord displayed against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and put their trust in him and in Moses, his servant. So the Israelites acknowledge and glorify the Lord by putting their trust in him. It doesn't even stop there, though. God wanted the news of this event to be spread far and wide so that the other nations would know about him. And years later, we read in Joshua, um, in the land of Canaan, The prostitute Rahab helps out the Israelites because she and her people have heard what happened at the Red Sea and they're terrified. God indeed made a name for himself that day and he gained glory. But, hold on a minute. Um, If God's ultimate purpose in salvation is gaining glory for himself, doesn't that make him basically selfish and not loving? Is God basically just out to get a clap No, he isn't. And the reason it's not selfish is because God's glory and our good are intertwined. God acting for his own sake is intricately linked with him acting for the sake of his people. You can't pull the two apart. You can't set them in opposition. God loves his people deeply. And the way that he shows his love to them is by giving them what's best for them, 
which is himself. And he gives them himself by displaying who he is, that he is powerful, that he's just, that he's merciful, and that he's gracious. His people can then look to him, trust in him, and be satisfied in him. God loves us by seeking his own glory. And God seeks his own glory by loving us. Does that make sense? They're sort of intertwined. Look at the example of the Red Sea. The Lord wanted a name for himself and gained glory over Egypt by showing himself to be the real, true God. Now, how did that come about? He defeated the Egyptians and saved his people, the Israelites. The the Israelites then saw how amazing Yahweh is and put their trust in him. Therefore, God is glorified and he's cherished by the Israelites. And the Israelites are saved and given what is best for them, which is the Lord God. And this is true with us too. Jesus gained glory when he saved his people. There he was revealed as the perfect, gracious, divine saviour who loves us so much that he would die for us. We look at the cross, we see our salvation and our eyes are opened. We see ourselves as hopeless, like the Israelites, and messed up and unable to save ourselves and undeserving. But we see how wonderful Christ is. He is displayed as the true God. And we see his beauty and justice and love. And I just moved to praise him for it. This glorifies Jesus, sure. It acknowledges him as high over all. But simultaneously, we are satisfied and we are given what we need most. We are strengthened and comforted and encouraged when we look to Jesus. This is how the Lord Jesus loves us. He gives us himself. We're saved for God's glory and our good. So today we've seen the nature of our salvation. We're dependent on God for it. We can't save ourselves. But we have a mediator in Jesus Christ who saves us and even suffers and dies for us. And all of this is linked to his glory and the glory of the Father as it reveals who God is like. And that glory is linked to our good as his people. So in closing then, what is our response? Well, just like those Israelites on the shore of the Red Sea, we're to look again at the salvation that Jesus has worked for us. Uh, The title title series we've had for uh, these sermons has been um, Exodus, Know the Lord. And hopefully today as his word word has been read and preached, um, we've had a chance to get to know him a little bit better. When we see God for who he is, Uh, What's required of us is that we put our trust in him afresh. We marvel at his goodness, we meditate on his character, and we give him the praise and glory for our salvation. And if you feel weak or low in faith, take heart that Jesus is your mediator and has fought for you. And more than that, he gives himself to you. And if you're not a Christian, then God's salvation is available to you too. The Lord Jesus offers himself to you even today. And so if you're interested in in getting to know the true God and getting to know the Lord Jesus, then please do come and talk to one of us. That'd be great. We'd love to chat to you. The God we worship is glorious and he brings a great salvation. Shall we pray? Father God, thank you so much that you choose to reveal yourself in salvation and in judgment. Thank you, Lord, that at the Red Sea and On the cross, we see you for who you really are, and we see Jesus for who he really is. 
Father, we pray that we would be able to gaze on you afresh and that that would change us, Lord. Help us to be comforted and encouraged and be joyful in the gospel as we look at who you are. And we pray that you would be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen.